Good evening, everybody. Welcome to church. The wonders of modern technology from my office to the church, just like that. Um, I'm really looking forward to the next several weeks as we keep working our way through these chapters in Matthew's gospel. They focus us onto the person of Jesus and who he is. Uh, and these two chapters in Matthew 8 and 9, they record for us a quick-fire series of miracle stories. I reckon I count 10, but I suppose it depends on how you slice it up. Jesus has taught so far in Matthew's Gospel about the Kingdom of God, and now in these miracles, it's as if the Kingdom of God is breaking in before people's very eyes. It's almost like Jesus has set about mending this broken world one leper, one sick servant, one feverish woman at a time. In the few verses we read today, Matthew tells us that evening came and he's telling us about the end of a day that began way back in Matthew chapter 5 with the Sermon on the Mount. And as this sun sets on a long day of teaching and healing, Matthew is doing more than simply recounting the events as they took place. With great subtlety and skill, he also wants to show us what Jesus' miracles really are, why Jesus performed them. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about today as we read these few verses. Why does Jesus perform these miracles? What is actually going on? What are we meant to learn as he comes down from the mountain to help and to heal, to mend the world around him? So let's read these verses together. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. This is God's word. So why, why the miracles? I think what first comes to mind is that Jesus' miracles are a display of his power. We just did a series of lessons in our primary school scripture classes on the miracle stories from Luke's gospel. And that was the point every week. The miracles teach us that Jesus is the powerful son of God. And there is remarkable power on display here. The brevity of the way Matthew tells the story makes it even more striking. Just with a touch, Jesus brings Peter's mother-in-law out of this fever as if she was just taking a nap. With a word, Jesus casts out spirits and heals the sick. And the key word is, well, word. The book of Genesis, remember, tells us about how the world was made by God's creative word. And now Matthew is showing us how the world is mended through the healing word of Jesus. The crowds were amazed by the divine authority of Jesus' words in his sermon, and now they see the divine power of Jesus' words in these miracles. Jesus here is doing what only God can do because he's speaking as only God can speak. His words teach 
and they touch with the very power of God. Which is why I think the Gospel writers don't seem very concerned to answer our modern question of, did these miracles even happen at all? Do you see, they don't try to prove or justify that these things really took place. See, what they understood is that these things were not freaky or supernatural. Because of who Jesus is, these are the natural consequence of his divine power coming into the world. And so the novelist Francis Spufford suggests perhaps this momentary suspension of the laws of the universe can happen because the maker of all things is no longer outside them. Now, instead, the maker is within as well. And he has hands that can reach. He has a local address in space and time from which to act. God has become flesh and he has divine words to speak. But there must be more than just power on display in Jesus' miracles. If you think about it, there would be no need for Jesus to come down from the mountaintop if all he wanted to do was to show how powerful he was. I mean, the crowds were hanging on his every word and he could have flung down thunder and lightning over them in an instant. And as evening came, he could have directed their attention up to the sky and rearranged the stars to spell out, I am the powerful son of God, would have cleared everything up pretty quickly. But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't stay up on the mountain. He comes down to the real stuff of human suffering and he gets his hands dirty. You could say that he descends into the valley of the shadow of death in order to walk with people. And instead of looking up to the stars in order to make much of himself, he looks down to the sick around him to make them well. And that's because Jesus' miracles are not only a display of his power, they also reveal to us his love. Look again at Matthew chapter 8. There's no fanfare as Jesus helps the family of his friend. He simply sees Peter's mother-in-law and heals her from her fever. This miracle, it looks like it's behind closed doors. It's away from the crowds. And even more than that, no one even asks for it. Last week, we saw that the leper came to Jesus and asked for healing for himself. And then a centurion came to Jesus, asking Jesus to heal his servant. But this miracle, it's unprompted. It's unprovoked. It's a private act of love flowing out of the generous heart of Jesus. And it's the same thing with the crowds at sunset. There's no fuss. There are no fireworks. But not a single person is turned away. See, by itself, the power of Jesus is not necessarily good news. We know, don't we, how quickly power can become corrupted and self-serving. From the schoolyard bully to the cutthroat colleague to the greedy politician, we know how that story goes. But it doesn't go that way with Jesus. He never uses his own power for himself to make his own life more comfortable We only ever see Jesus using his power to lift up the lowly and to help the hurting. His is a power exercised in love and that is good news. 
And just as this power flows out naturally because of Jesus as who he is, as God in the flesh, his love flows out naturally as well. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says that Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. His tender affections stream from his innermost heart as rays from the sun. I love that. The power of Jesus is amazing, but the love of Jesus is even more astounding. Together, they are utterly compelling. Jesus doesn't have a tyrannical power, nor does he have a sentimental love. He is the lion and the lamb, fierce and holy, and yet for us. But that raises a question. If Jesus possesses such power and love, why are his miracles so limited? If this is who Jesus is, then the really challenging question is not, did these miracles really happen? The hard question to answer is, why are these the only miracles that happen? Yes, Peter's mother-in-law is made well, but how many other families slept anxiously that night because they had a sick family member in their house. Yes, the queue at Capernaum is completely healed, but what of the other tormented souls throughout all Israel? And what about the terrible sickness that raged on through all the world? Yes, Jesus is the maker. He's come in to mend the world. He has a local address in space and time, but now he's limited to that address. He simply can't be in every place at once. Here's Francis Spufford again. He has only two hands and one voice. He can only touch people who are within the reach of his hands as he travels at foot speed or fishing boat speed around the province. Day after day ends with Jesus leaving behind the vast total of the world's suffering almost unaltered. Only the tiniest fraction of it eased. One man doing miracles in the Middle East doesn't even move the leprosy statistics. The cruelty of the cruel world reproduces itself far faster than his slow hands can move. He brings sight to blind eyes and yet all the causes of blindness rage on. He can't mend the world's sorrows these days. This way, weep though he does, say yes though he does to every request. And so the healing of damaged bodies can only be a sign of what he's truly come to do. The miracles of Jesus are a dramatic display of his power and a tender revelation of his love, but that is not all. For Jesus' miracles are also a signpost to his grace. And again, this is evident in the details of Matthew chapter 8. Every miracle that Jesus performs has this spiritual edge to it. So we saw last week, Jesus cleanses the leper and then tells him to go to the temple. Jesus heals a servant and then he starts speaking about the kingdom of heaven and the outer darkness of hell. Jesus doesn't only heal the sick in our passage today, but he gives freedom to those who are oppressed by evil spirits. Jesus here is not only concerned with the pumping muscle that beats within our chest. 
He's showing us that his real business is with the human heart in a metaphorical sense. The heart that is at the center of our being, the source of all that we say and do. It's the heart that has turned away from God. And it's the heart that is the spring of all of the hurt and the grief that we ourselves bring into this hurting world. Jesus has come to mend the sickness of sin, to mend humanity's broken relationship with our maker. And this is what Matthew wants us to see as he ends this section in verse 17. Verse 16 told us about the powerful word that Jesus spoke. And now Matthew points us to a prophetic word that Jesus fulfilled. Look again at verse 17. Matthew says, This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. This is Isaiah's prophecy about a suffering servant. And Christians have always heard in the description of the suffering servant a stunning picture of the death of Jesus. Isaiah goes on in the verse that follows this one quoted by Matthew. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. But now Matthew takes this prophecy of the suffering servant and he applies it to the miracles of Jesus and not just his cross. It's like Matthew wants us to see everything that Jesus says and does under the umbrella of cross. That every word, every touch is leading towards the cross and revealing the nature of the cross. And when we see all of that, the miracles in Matthew chapter 8 start to open up for us. For all of these miracles in this chapter are to outsiders. Peter's mother-in-law was a woman. She wasn't allowed right into the center of Israel's temple worship. The Gentiles, like the centurion, couldn't enter beyond the courtyard. And the leper wasn't allowed in the temple at all. But here is Jesus. He's moving out. He's bringing the presence of God to all people. And so our minds are cast forward to that moment when Jesus dies and the temple curtain is torn in two and the temple is opened up, worship is opened up for every man and woman and people and nation. And in his touching and his speaking, it's as if Jesus is taking onto his own shoulders every misery. And as he does that, he's not overwhelmed or overcome. Rather, everyone around him is mended and made new. And again, we think of the cross. As he dies, Jesus bears the consequence of our sin. He is crushed under the judgment of God. He's buried under the weight of all of our wrongdoing. And yet, even in death, he's not overwhelmed or overcome. He bursts through death and out into new life. And he promises to mend and make new all who trust in him. Yes, Jesus' miracles are limited. He is limited. But that's the point. The unlimited maker of all things becomes a limited man. He takes on our limits because he also wants to take on our consequences. He wants to take on our suffering. 
And he wants to take on our sin and all of the consequences that that brings into the world, which itself is the cause of all of our suffering. Jesus wants to heal our hearts. He wants to reach back and transform our past. See, this is what Jesus wants to offer us in his power and his love. He offers us grace. In a world of consequences, Jesus offers to take on himself and carry away the consequences for all our own cruelty and failures. And so there's grace for that careless word that ruined a friendship or created distance with your family. There's grace for the inattention that you've shown to your spouse that leaves your marriage cold. There's grace for years and relationships that are hurt by addiction. There's grace for that self-interest and preoccupation with our own things that leaves us isolated from other people. There's grace for all those times where we exclude the outcasts, where we withhold care from the hurting, where we protect our own comfort and our own security at the expense of others. See, there's grace for us. That's what the miracles of Jesus are teaching us more than anything else. They want to teach us of the overwhelming grace of Jesus. As he moves out in power and love to those who are undeserving of his help and yet truly desire it, we see that there is grace for us too if we come to him in faith. The Dutch theologian Herman Baffink says it beautifully. In the various miracles Jesus performs, in the driving out of demons, in the healing of the blind and deaf and the crippled and maimed, in resurrecting the dead and in commanding the forces of nature, he gives conclusive evidence of the fact that he can perfectly redeem us from all our misery. There is no guilt so great, nor any sin, and there is no misery so deep that he cannot remove by his priestly love and his kingly power. There is nothing that Jesus cannot mend. Do you know that? Someone who knew that was Peter. We met Peter, he was in that room in Matthew chapter 8. And you can imagine, can't you, Peter wiping away his tears as his mother-in-law was healed. And yet later in his life, Peter wept again. Three times he denied his Lord as he was led away to die. See, how could Jesus possibly mend that? It's one thing to deal with sickness, but how do you heal a sinful heart? But once again, Jesus wipes tears away. Just as his mother-in-law was restored from her fever, Peter is restored from his failure. In this chapter here, there was grace for Peter and his family that points us forward to the cross. And from that same cross flowed a river of powerful, loving grace that could wash all of Peter's sins away. And as Peter wrote to the early churches, teaching them of his grace, the grace that Jesus had shown to him, he too reached for Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant, to explain who Jesus is and what he does for all who come to him. Peter wrote, He himself 
bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So what's the point of the miracles of Jesus? What are we meant to learn? Jesus is more powerful than you can imagine. He's more loving than you could ever dream. And he offers more grace to you than you ever dared hope for. More can be mended than you know. Amen.